walk. His mother was nearby in the kitchen, making lunch, and the baby happily moved from room to room. And as he went to the living room, he spied the door and wobbled toward it. Just tall enough, he reached for the knob, and he was able to turn the release to the latch. And with his chubby fingers, he pried open the door, and he crouched himself lower down the stoop and climbed down onto the sidewalk. He turned around to see the front yard and the street and the park within view. Underneath his breath, he mumbled, ducky, ducky, ducky. He knew at the pond, at the park, they would have ducks. So with purpose, he ambled toward the yard and toward the street. And at the curb, he tripped, and he soiled his pants and his hands, but he was undeterred. Thankfully, he crossed the road, and no cars came, and he crossed safely. And through the maze of the park, he found the pond, and he walked within the thin strip of the beach bordering the pond, and the ducks were there. And the mama duck spied the baby, and she clucked to her brood in the water. And the baby was undeterred. He marched toward the water. And ankle deep in the pond, his feet sank and become stuck in the mud, and he toppled over. He began to cry. He struggled to get out of the mud, but only became dirtier and slipped in deeper. And in the distance, he heard his name, and his mother was calling him, and he wailed louder. And she came upon the scene, and she scooped him up, and she kissed his muddy face. And she took him home, and she yelled to everybody in the park, I found him! I found him! And she took him home, and she cleaned him up, and she called all of her friends. You never believe what happened today. He was lost, but I found him. Now, what if I just said, thank you for coming, and walked off the stage and sat down? Some of you are like, early lunch, I'm good with that. Let's keep this day moving. But if you're here to hear some kind of spiritual wisdom or some scripture from the Bible or something manageable to your life, you might struggle to get what I'm meaning out of this, out of this story. But here we are. We're in this place at Crestmont where we're entering in the life of Jesus, and he is starting to tell parables. And there are reasons that he tells parables, but... but Parables are very simple stories. And one thing easy to remember, if you're a kid downstairs, you might have heard this before. And discipling our kids together, I want to use some of the same language that our kids are using up here so that we can speak the same language. And a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So it is a story that is relatable to our lives, but it has spiritual meaning for our lives. And that's what a parable is. So Jesus, at this stage of his ministry, is starting to tell parables. And we've heard in our sermons, we'll have several parables in a row. So this is just a um, brief overview on what is a parable and how can we interpret it. Usually only has one meaning in it. It's not an allegory. Not everything necessarily has, has a meaning, although there can be allegorical components. So why did Jesus tell parables? You would think, I would think, Jesus tells parables so that his message is really easy to understand and it goes down easy. Because wasn't it easy to listen to the story about a little boy who was 
dirty and a toddler. You were right there. You could visualize the park and the street. Maybe you were anxious about him crossing the street. Is he going to get hurt? Or the pond, and you're thinking, oh, no, he doesn't swim yet. He could drown. You're right there with me. But still, the spiritual truth is maybe underneath the surface. So there are three reasons, and that is one of them, that Jesus tells parables. One of them is that he's relatable. He often tells stories that people would understand. In that day and age, just like the toddler to you, you can visualize maybe the house that he lived in, the door that he unlatched, the street, the park. It all came into your mind as a picture. Well, the same thing happened to Jesus and the people listening to his stories. They were right there, and they could understand what he meant by that. And he also told stories to reveal the truth of the kingdom. He wanted to open up scriptural truth for people so they would understand it in their own language. But the third reason is a little mysterious because he also told parables to conceal the truth from people who were hard of heart and didn't want to hear the truth. So... Matthew 13, 11 and 13, he replied when the disciples asked, why do you tell parables? He replied, because the knowledge and the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. And those seeing, they do not see. And though hearing, they do not hear or understand. So last time I preached, I was telling you that we're nearing the end, the last third of Jesus' ministry. And although he started in the synagogue... In the beginning of the ministry, he kind of took it to the streets, and his followers came and gathered around him, and he went from town to town and was preaching. And then he gained a lot of popularity. Miracles will tend to pack the house. When you feed 5,000, when you heal people, when people are raised from the dead, people are curious, if nothing else, and they want to know what you're saying because you have the power behind that. And that happened with Jesus as well. But as his popularity grew, so did the opposition because the church... The church of the day, the synagogue, the Pharisees, were very interested in making sure that what he was teaching was orthodox, and why was he uh, detracting maybe from their teaching, and what was he teaching them, and they felt maybe a certain responsibility or competition, the, the reasons could be varied, why he was teaching this way. So the Pharisees were also following him, and this is called the the time of his opposition. And a lot of times these Pharisees were hard of heart, so they did not want to hear the truth of what uh, Jesus was saying. They wanted to make sure and analyze what he was saying. So parables were a way for him to conceal the truth of the kingdom of God for those who were not seeking the truth and um, were opposed to his ministry. So he told many of them, in fact, according to Mark 4, 34, he did not say, from this point on, he uses more parables. So in the beginning, he didn't. You can think of the Sermon on the Mount when he opens the scrolls in Isaiah. He's speaking very plainly and he's teaching to them. But from this point on, he's telling parables. In fact, it says he did not say anything to them without using a parable. They're about, this is a fun fact, 35 of Jesus' parables recorded in the synoptic gospels. It had not always been this way, but then he began to speak to them in parables. 
But Jesus made sure that his disciples understood the meaning of the parables. And with, when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. So now let's open our Bibles today to Luke 15, 1, and we will read two parables, and we will talk through them with this understanding of parables in mind. Once you find Luke, you can find it. It will also be on the screen behind you. If we could stand to our feet in honor of God's word, let's read through these two parables together. Luke 15, 1. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go and search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. And when he arrives, he will call all together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Or suppose a woman has lost 10 silver coins and loses, has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there's joy in the presence of God's angels when one sinner repents. Take your seats and let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for your word and that you told parables both to reveal and to conceal. We ask that you would open our hearts and mind now that we would be true seekers of your word and that you would open up and enlighten our hearts to the meaning that you have for us today. Spirit, come and speak through me and to open hearts here today in Jesus' name. Amen. So our main idea for today is that God's heart is set on lost people. He seeks them. He finds them, and he celebrates them. God's heart is set on lost people. I Google, I Google, it said desired and yearned, and I, I just looked at all of those um, synonyms, and the one that drew me out is that God's heart was set on lost people. His heart is full. His focus and attention is on lost people. So as I read through this passage, I noticed a lot of threes, things that came in threes. And let me highlight some of those for you. In the first part, it said there were three different people or groups in his audience. There were the disciples who were listening. So these are the people that traveled with him, his friends that were listening in tune, the ones he explained everything to. And then there were notorious sinners, people who were known for the wrong things that they did obviously wrong. And they were drawn to Jesus to listen to his teaching. And then there were also the Pharisees and the church leaders who were going to Jesus more to check on him. And scripture says their motives were not seekers, but uh, opposers to Jesus. So there's three of those types of people. So I think in Crestmont here today, there may be 
those three types of people here. You might identify yourself as one of those. But as I was thinking of myself, I said, I'm all three of those. I am all three of those things. There is part of me that is a church person and that I'm looking for truth and I'm analyzing and I'm not in a seeking place, but I'm in a critical place and I'm criticizing truth. And there's a part of me that is a notorious sinner that has that knows that I've done wrong, that knows that I am wrong, that knows that I am self-focused and not God-focused. And there is part of me that is an earnest disciple. So we don't necessarily have to categorize ourselves as, oh, you're a this and I'm a that. I think there's elements of all of those people right in here, right in each one of us. So onward with another set of three. In Luke 15, he knows the tax collectors and the Pharisees are all listening to him, and he's addressing this. The Pharisees are complaining that he's associating with sinful people. So this is what Jesus is addressing, and what he does is he tells three parables. He tells two of the ones we, we just read, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then he goes on to to tell the parable of the prodigal son, which will be next week. I won't step on it too much. So in those things, he's, he's making a trifecta of one point that God's heart is set on lost people, like this, like this, and like this. So then out of these three parables, I saw that there's three types of lost people. And the lost sheep, the lost sheep wanders. That just seems... Uh, foolish to me. He doesn't say that the sheep has any malintent. The sheep is not um, rebellious or intending or anything else. The sheep just wandered and got lost. So that was just a foolish sheep. Well, then there's the ignorant coin. The coin has no will. The coin is lost. The coin has nothing to do with it. It's just lost. It just got dropped off. So it's ignorant. It's, It's an inanimate object. But then there's also the prodigal, and this prodigal is a rebel, and this is a willful, wrong person. So Jesus, in telling this three parables back to back to back, is saying, here is one type of of foolish sheep. Here's another type, an ignorant coin. Here's another type, a willful rebel. All of these three, Jesus is making a point, is desired by God. But there's all the three types of savior. In the shepherd is the first, the father is the last, and the next one is the woman who's looking in her home. There is the shepherd, the father, and the woman. And one commentary noted the son was symbolized in the parable of the lost sheep. We can see that with the good shepherd and those references. And the father would be featured in the parable parable of the prodigal son. The father is the main character. And the woman representing the spirit would complete the trinity. And even if that's not completely accurate, the point is absolutely orthodox. And the point is this, all facets of God, God the son, God the father, and God the spirit desires lost people, the ignorant, the fool, and the rebel. All parts of God desire all parts of lost people. God's heart is set on lost people. He has his heart set on you. 
So let's just reread um, the lost sheep and 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 talk about the lost sheep just for a brief moment. So if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he lead the ninety-nine others in the wilderness and go and search for the one is lost until he finds him? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it on his shoulders. And when he arrives, he will call his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over the 99 who are righteous and haven't strayed away. So in the lost sheep, there's three things that I noted about the lost sheep. It's obvious. Jesus is saying, if one of the sheep is lost, he didn't say... He goes and finds it. He says, doesn't he go and find it? It's something he's confirming with them. He's like, we all know what this guy would do. We know that he would go and find that lost sheep because we know that sheep is valuable. So this, in their culture, they're talking about a commodity of this sheep that is part of this business. It has value to the shepherd, and he must go and find this sheep. So it's an obvious truth that he would go and find the sheep. Number two, it's important. It's important enough that he leaves the other 99. So it's obvious and it's important. And number three, he celebrates it afterwards. Now, this is kind of an odd thing that maybe, maybe I would think. It's my culture. I'm thinking back to shepherds and what a shepherd might think. But would shepherds really be that excited that they found a lost sheep? Surely this has to happen fairly regularly. Would they just go over the moon? I found this sheep. But Jesus is revealing the heart, his heart, and what he feels when he finds a lost sheep, when he finds a sinner who has come back to him. And it also, he celebrates the loss, and it also stuck out to me that the sheep didn't have to do anything, that Jesus was the one that found the sheep, Jesus carried the sheep on his shoulders, and Jesus celebrated the sheep. So when we're talking about that, the sheep had no responsibility here. The sheep had no responsibility in being found. All of the responsibility was on the shepherd to find the sheep, and he did. He searched until he found it. Let's read through the next um, parable one more time, the lost coin. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Now, I found some interesting things to me about the lost coins. The lost coins, when Jesus was speaking to his audience and he said 10 silver coins and she loses one, okay, let's say, if I'm saying to you there's a silver coin and we lost one, are we talking a nickel? Are we talking a, a silver coin? What silver coins do we have? A quarter? That doesn't really mean anything to us. And the commentators will tell you one silver coin was about a day's wages for a peasant, which really on a grand scale, a peasant... Minimum wage, maybe 50 bucks. So if a woman lost a silver coin or something, if you lost something that was worth 50 bucks and you knew it was in your house, I don't know if I relate to the panic that this parable is describing. Wouldn't she light the lamp and sweep all over to find? I would say, eh, if I lost it in the house, I'll find it tomorrow. It's okay. Uh, we'll get there when we get there. 
Um, but there's a, a certain urgency that this parable is, uh, is teaching about. But as I studied a little further, what Jesus's audience may have thought of is something that a woman would have worn and is a necklace or a headband like on the picture. And it's something that her husband would have given her. It would have been like her wedding ring. It would have had 10 coins, not really worth a lot of money, but to a peasant, it has not only financial value, but it has significance because it's what she wears in public to tell people that she belongs to her husband. It probably also had a lot of sentimental value to her, that that is my, that is my wedding necklace, that is my wedding band, and boy, that one, that one silver coin is missing. It would be like smiling without a front tooth. It would be something that would cause you shame, that you would not want to wear out, and it would cause that urgency and that panic. And I think about that relating to us, that God is saying, you are like my bride. You are like my lovely. And if I have lost one of you, and you do not belong to me, I am grieved even more so than someone who has lost their wedding ring. So I actually did lose my diamond on an airplane, and I had been all over, and it was nice to see I could relate to this point, because it was nice to see that everybody panicked with me. My diamond had popped out. I had just worked a long flight. I was in the customs hall, and I turned around and can't get back on the airplane. And I just went, oh. I told my crew, oh, no. Somebody offered to run back with me. I tell the customs official. He doesn't care about the laws. He's like, OK, come with me. I've got to walk you back on. We went back down, and we tell the gate agent. The gate agent's not supposed to let me back on because I've already cleared and security's on. She goes, come with me. We've got to walk through. And the cleaners are all there. And everybody, all the cleaners are notified. She lost her diamond for her ring. And everybody is looking around and walking up and down. Oh, my goodness. I, I knew I had picked up trash. I jammed it in. I had trays in and out of carts. I'd had my fingers in and out of beverages. It could be anywhere. And I did not find it. But sad story. But if I would have, <laughs> thanks, Christine. Great sermon. <laughs> But it was that moment that everyone could relate to. Everyone said, that is precious to you. It's not a big diamond. It's a little diamond. It was a screaming diamond, though, wasn't it, honey? Yeah, he picked a good one. Um, you know, we're not wealthy people, but it was my symbol of my relationship with Jim that I wore everywhere. When I came home and I didn't have that and I had to take that ring off, I went to Walmart just to get a band or something because I felt just so naked without it. Well, here is, is Jesus telling this story to these three groups of people, and they understood. Silver coin, it doesn't matter how much it's worth. We're going to light the lamps. We're going to crawl under the tables and search in the dust. And as I looked at the possibility that this could represent the Holy Spirit, it was interesting to me to know that their floors would, was, were probably made of dirt. It was interesting to me that this would be like the Holy Spirit taking a broom and lighting a lamp and looking all throughout the earth and making sure that he, she swept in every corner and that she found that coin and put it with the others that belonged. 
That meant a significant amount to me, that God would care that much about me in the dirt, that he would search all night and find me. All right. So now there's just obviously three application points for us today from this, from this parable. And the first is God seeks, finds, and celebrates you and me. And there is this book that I've never read that I've mentioned often. It's the <laughs> most profound book that I've never read. I just had to read the title, and I've tucked it in my head, and it says, Desired by God, Deceived by Shame. And there is something implanted in each one of us that says we're not worth being desired by God. We're not important enough. Or the converse of that can be true, that God's not worth it. But that lie is true. And this parable tells over and over and over, not only is his heart set on you. Not only does every part of God desire you, but he seeks you and he finds you until you're found and then he rejoices that you have been restored to him. He celebrates his relationship with you. He rejoices over you with singing. That's a hard thing. I want you to sit with that for a minute. Can you receive that? Can you take that in? Because this parable is not about any action point on our point. Part. Jesus is not saying, so the 99 other sheep should have gotten out of there and found that other, helped him find that other lost sheep. That's not what Jesus was saying. It's all about the perspective of God toward lost people. That's what these parables are about. And the first perspective that we have to align ourselves with is that I am desired by the Most High God. He desires me. He's passionate for me heart is set on me. He is looking for me until he finds me. He will not give up. Can you sit in that? Can you know that in your heart? Psalm 18, 16, and 19 said, he reached down from on high. Read all of Psalm 18. It's one of my favorites. He reached down from on high, and he took hold of me, and he drew me out of deep waters, and he brought me into a spacious place, and he rescued me because he delighted in me, because I am the object of God's delight. Selah. Think about that. Number two, he has his heart set on your loved ones. There are people, maybe you are a follower of Christ and you are passionate about your relationship with God, but you probably know people that do not know Christ. People that you love people in your extended family, people that maybe you have been praying for for a long time. And I just want you to know that God has his heart set on your loved ones. There was a lady one time whose son was rebellious and he was doing all kinds of wrong things and living the wrong life. And so she went to her pastor and she said, I don't know what to do about my son. He is... Um, on drugs, selling drugs, he's, you know, carousing, multiple girlfriends, um, he, he's in trouble with the law, he's running from the police, I just keep praying for him. The pastor says, well, what do you pray? What do you pray for your son? And she says, well, I pray that he comes to know God and that he's blessed and that he's safe. And he says, good, I want you to remove all of the prayers except for one. 
I want you to take your son and put him with no conditions through your prayer into the hands of God and give God complete freedom to do whatever he needs to do to seek and save your son. And that was a very hard thing for a mother to do, to say, God, I give you my son, and I ask not for his protection, but that you would, that you would show yourself to him and that he would know you through whatever circumstances you choose to come and find my son. He was in a motorcycle accident the next day, and it was life-threatening. And in that, he had this vision of heaven, and through his recovery and his mother's tending and everything else, but she felt in that moment, because her prayer changed and she released that safety and protection and blessing but she allowed God to do whatever he wanted to do, that just in this circumstance, through that particular um, set of events, it caused him to come back to Christ. So Jesus, God, has his heart set on your loved ones. The last one is God seeks, finds, and celebrates and has his heart set on the people we avoid. I have them, you have them. There are people in our lives, I would say enemies or people we don't like, um, the people that we avoid. And there are, it is hard for us sometimes to think of a person that is undeserving in our mind or someone that we would not want to see in the kingdom. And it's hard for us to set up the mental space with God and say, God is as passionate and in love and has his heart set on this person as he is on me and my loved ones. And that's a very difficult bridge to gap. Uh, sometimes it's people groups, sometimes it's neighborhoods, sometimes it's people who have offended, offended us and done wrong, and sometimes it's people we've just washed our hands from. But God is passionate about finding, seeking, and saving people that we avoid and would not deem worthy. He can make them free and worthy, and he can save them. Because in John 13, 316, it said, For God so loved the whole world that he gave his only son that whoever should believe would not perish but have everlasting life.